years, as it tells you in the little bit of paper. He came from Sheffield in 1963, but all that was written down. Some of us can remember him coming, but even those few who can are all retired by now. Uh, uh, I can remember meeting him in the Jenkin building before this Tom building was even opened, uh, somewhere around by a wind tunnel, I think, uh, which must have been removed to Oceany uh, decades and decades ago. Alistair came here as an electrical machines expert, uh, someone who had actually designed electrical machines, uh, more than anyone else in the place I think had ever done. Uh, but he then moved on to plasmas and so on. He wrote us a book on uh, a textbook for undergraduate for electrical engineering, and he wrote the or part of the famous House of London Fog, which I've uh, just uh, heard undergraduates uh, thanking him effusively for for making life so much easier. Uh, has already given a lecture on history of this department. He gave the first Jenkins lecture 20 years ago, but he's lost a lot more in the, learnt a lot more in the meantime. Uh, and what is that kind of book we're going to get? Uh, the little bit of or an email that went round to some of you said he's in the throes of writing a book, which sounds terribly painful. Uh, but it's uh, apparently it's not really, uh, but it's highly desirable. I'm absolutely sure all this stuff gets written down. Alistair. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, I'd like to begin by thanking Andrew Osborne and his company for sponsoring this lecture. <clears throat> I feel it's a, a great privilege to be sponsored at all, something that has never really happened to me very much before. <clears throat> uh, the other thing I should say uh, is that I want to express here my thanks to the many members of the department and past members who have helped me uh, in assembling the information for this. And I would also like to thank in particular uh, Janet Hovard and John Mooney, who are pretending to be busy in the aisle over there. Uh, they have been an enormous help in finding uh, photographs and otherwise. Uh, thirdly, I would like to thank Martin Oldfield for all his help. Uh, you may not have seen half of that because I find that my voice tends to disappear now. And if my voice should disappear to the extent when you can't hear anything at all I say, uh, Martin will take over. Um, I've, I've, never, I've never had an understudy before, but I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying having one now. <clears throat> I hope it won't be required, but I suppose all uh, performers think that. Now, we have heard in this series of lectures already about some of the early figures in engineering at Oxford. In particular, we've heard about Hooke, and Wallace and Froude, and I don't, I don't propose to uh, say any more about them. Uh, even if you haven't actually heard the lectures concerned, uh, I'm sure you can arrange to uh, uh, hear them somehow. They're all uh, on film. Uh, I would, however, like to go back a good way beyond the first professor, whose centenary we are celebrating. And. Um, I would like to start by showing you this uh, view of Oxford. You may recognize where it is. It's taken from the corner of the Randolph, and it's looking across to the other side of St. Giles. And those of you who know Oxford will perhaps know that this is St. John's we're looking at here, and this too is St. John's, and this is Balliol. Uh, this used to be a solicitor's office. What some of you may not have realized 
is that this bit here is neither of these two colleges, but it's Trinity. <laughs> and that's where our story starts. It doesn't become me to uh, be too flattering about it, of course, but uh, it's a very important uh, gate. I believe Trinity is the only college in Oxford that has three uh, gates onto main thoroughfares. Uh, this is a fairly modest gate by Trinity standards, but uh, it's nevertheless quite a nice one. And it's um, interesting to note that on the window grills, which I can perhaps point out to you, uh, these little things there, you'll see a motif uh, which is dolphins. And these gates actually take you into Trinity's Dolphin Yard. And that's quite an important site for us. If you stand um, by the left-hand gate of the pier and squint through the opening towards your right, if you actually do this, uh, be careful you don't attract a crowd all looking <laughs> in the same way. Um, you can see on the boundary wall with Balliol, about maybe 30 metres in, possibly, a stone plaque. And it's that. This is the boundary wall, and this is in the Dolphin Yard. Here stood the laboratory where between 1926 and 1941, it's actually wrong, it was 1929 and 1941. It celebrates the work of Hinshelwood, the physical chemist, a scientist of enormous eminence. As you can see, he won a Nobel Prize. He was um, a fellow Trinity at the time uh, when, he, when he worked here. And he was president of the Royal Society a bit later, too. Uh, it doesn't say half about him, actually. He was not only president of the Royal Society, he was at the same time president of the Classical Association. Uh, he was um, uh, not only that, he was uh, an expert on oriental ceramics, and in addition, he could paint tolerably well, and he painted the inside of his lab. Now, this lab in the Dolphin Yard was occupying a, a quite a narrow yard uh, of Trinity, and the lab itself occupied, I suppose, about half the width of that. So it was really a very narrow lab, and it, it was fairly long, but the whole thing was about 140 square metres. And that's where Hinshelwood did his work. Now, the plaque doesn't tell us the whole story of that lab. It doesn't, for example, tell us that until 1929, when Hinshelwood started, it was a bathhouse. The um, undergraduates in Trinity, and perhaps others too, uh, felt in need of uh, baths. And uh, there's another thing it doesn't tell us, and that is, before it was a bathhouse, it was built as an engineering lab. It was the first engineering lab in Oxford, and it was built by Trinity. And it was not only um, the college's laboratory for a time, it became the first home of our own department. Uh, you can't, of course, see any remains of it now, but the plaque will tell you <coughs> where it is. Uh, now, the man who was really responsible uh, for it is this chap here. As you can see, he's a clergyman. He later became a bishop, but he was president of Trinity in 1878 to 87. And he was a good egg. He was a great reformer. He was keen on all the good causes. He was keen on science. He was keen on women's education. And he was keen on what was called university extension, which is what we now call access. 
He had been an, an extremely good headmaster at Clifton College, which was newly opened uh, at that time of the century. And he encouraged science there a good deal. Uh, he appointed science masters, most of whom went on to be elected to the Royal Society. He did it. He proposed to the college that they should build this laboratory. And sure enough, it was built and advertised uh, under the college's name. Uh, if you can't read it, it says Millard Laboratory and Workshop for Experimental Mechanics and Engineering. And the date is September 1885. Uh, it was ready um, in May 1986. And the person that Trinity got to direct it is named here as the Reverend uh, Frederick Smith. And there he is. This was taken uh, probably uh, when he arrived in Oxford. He was a vicar in Taunton in Somerset, but he was that very vicarly thing. He was a first-class amateur mechanic. His academic qualifications to run an engineering lab weren't astounding. He had a past degree in classics. <laughs> uh, it, it, it helped him to give names to some of his apparatus, but otherwise uh, it didn't help. But by the time he came to Oxford, he had uh, several patents under his belt, and he turned out to be just the man for the job. Now, you may well uh, want to ask me why it's called the Millard Laboratory. Uh, the answer to that is that Trinity College received out of the blue, uh, all unexpected, 8,000 pounds in 1872, uh, left to them as a bequest by a chap called Thomas Millard, who had no obvious connection with uh, Oxford, uh, but was very keen on mathematics. And he left this money to the college, which was the largest bequest they had had since they were founded, uh, to um, help mathematics and science. And Trinity, to his credit, uh, immediately appointed a series of Millard lecturers. But when Percival came it, as president, it was he who wanted an engineering lab. And the money obviously ran to that, as well as paying lecturers. So Smith became the Millard lecturer and the first teacher of engineering, as such, in Oxford. <clears throat> well, now, um, that is the syllabus that he was uh, going to teach. As you can see, it's heavily dependent on mechanical things. Um, as it turns out, Smith was very good electrically as well. Uh, but at the time, engineering was thought very much in these terms. And, of course, graphical statics uh, indicates that the graphical method of solving problems in these days was very important. And uh, here are some of the things they did. And uh, you, you will like the mechanics treated experimentally. Uh, Oxford people at that time seemed to be very anxious to distinguish between uh, treated mathematically and treated non-mathematically, uh, maybe for obvious reasons. Uh, and the, the January uh, concerned is, I think this was the Lent term of, of 1888. So that was the, one of the alternative names for Hillary. So January 88, uh, this is what was happening. And room A... Um, in, 19, in 1888 was a room that was lent by St. John's. St. John's were uh, just the other side of the yard from uh, the lab, 
and one of their dons was uh, a physicist who was very keen on workshop equipment, and for some reason he wanted to give up his own uh, equipment um, in St. John's, and obviously knew Smith quite well, and lent him um, uh, some accommodation. <clears throat> now, the uh, things that Smith were, was known for when he came, he had done a lot of work on dynamometers. We heard a lot about that when we had a lecture on fruit, of course, but uh, Smith had his own brand of dynamometers, and he had particularly developed an integrating dynamometer so that you could measure work done. Uh, this, however, was what he worked on um, <clears throat> when he came to Trinity. It's a chronograph, and you might be able to um, uh, see roughly how it works. It's called a tram chronograph because this thing uh, ran on these rails, and it was propelled by a weight. All very primitive. This was a prototype, and it's on a table probably in the Millard lab. <clears throat> and the, it was used for measuring high-speed events really high-speed events, the speed of bullets and uh, explosions and so on. And it did this by mounting on this tram a smoke glass plate, and then the event you're uh, measuring is arranged to trigger uh, three styli in this case, which were usually electromagnetic in operation, and the calibration for time was done with a tuning fork, which you can see there just about. So this is a very primitive version of Smith's chronograph. Uh, he used that for <coughs> um, uh, many things, some of which were commissioned by outside uh, national bodies like the um, arsenal at Woolwich who wanted to measure the speed of uh, explosions and things. And uh, <coughs> it was said that he, with the later models, uh, he could get uh, measurements down to about uh, one twenty-thousandth part of a second now, when one twenty-thousandth part of a second sounds a lot more impressive than 50 microseconds. And um, the Newcastle Daily Chronicle was so impressed by this that they wrote in an article about Smith, it's enough to stagger the judgment of ordinary folk. <laughs> well, I don't suppose 50 microseconds staggers your judgment anymore. <laughs> but nevertheless, it was very uh, impressive to people then. And it, that shows that Smith was reported widely. He wasn't a kind of solitary figure working in a little yard in Oxford, unknown to the outside world. He was really very well known. He, uh, he was a, an indefatigable inventor. He averaged about one patent a year from uh, 1888 for the next 10 years. And <clears throat> he was uh, reported in the Royal Society and in the national press. And he was in correspondence with many of the well-known engineers of the day, uh, Parsons and uh, Eiffel of Tower fame and um, Kelvin. And he must have had enormous satisfaction when he uh, was in touch with Kelvin, who you may know was a, a fairly um, a dignified uh, figure who thought much of himself. Uh, but Smith put him right when he made a mistake in his book. <coughs> <laughs> Uh, he was very quick with new things, and when there were lots of electrical developments at the end of the century, he was on to these very quickly. He very nearly discovered X-rays when he uh, found that photographic plates got fogged when they were near a discharge tube. And he, uh, one of his patents at that time was a new form of aerial, 
and he uh, demonstrated wireless uh, telegraphy, as he called it, uh, between his house in Norham Gardens and the lab. So he was quite, uh, quite far ahead of his time in his own way. Now, that was Smith. <clears throat> he was the, the person who started engineering in Oxford. But the question that must occur to all of us is, why on earth didn't we have a professor? Uh, when we finally got a professor, uh, Smith was into his 60s, and he didn't even apply. And there was never a suggestion that he should be given a chair. He was a very modest man, a very kind man, always anxious to help, very inspiring to his students, and always anxious to help. Um, <clears throat> but um, he wasn't really in the running uh, for a professorship uh, by, the time he, um, uh, by the time it was decided to have one. So what we must ask ourselves, or what I think uh, you should ask yourself, is why were we so late? There are the early ones. Uh, Glasgow and King's College London were the first. I think they argue with each other as to who was exactly first. Uh, but they, 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 they were early on the scene. Uh, Durham was certainly trying it before 1850. Uh, and Edinburgh got uh, a chap called Fleming Jenkin in 1868, and when he took up the post, he had a small son, age three, called Charles Fruin. Uh, Cambridge were a bit later, and um, I thought it was worthwhile pointing out to you that in 1875, James Stewart didn't have an examination in his department. Uh, the Cambridge Tripos didn't start until 1892, and it was started by the professor who followed Stuart, uh, Alfred Ewing, who was one of Fleming Jenkins' pupils. Fleming Jenkins had some interesting pupils, uh, his own son, Charles Fruin, of course, and this chap, uh, Ewing, who was a very uh, distinguished engineer, and um, <clears throat> he also had as his pupil uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, who was, uh, I can tell you, a much better writer than he was an engineer. <coughs> Well, Oxford was still um, trying uh, at this stage, uh, doing its best. Um, they were well aware uh, that uh, engineering was important. It wasn't that they never thought about it. They had thought about it for quite a long time uh, in Oxford, uh, but they didn't uh, get uh, very far. This is a history of some attempts to get engineering going here. Uh, the Devonshire Commission was a royal commission set up in 1870, reported three years later. Uh, it reported on all kinds of institutions, but it had one particular report on Oxford and Cambridge, and Oxford was advised to get a chair of engineering. It wasn't necessarily called engineering. Engineering chairs were called all sorts of things, usually with mechanics in. The, the chap at Cambridge was a professor of mechanism, for example, the first one. Now, in 1877, there was a parliamentary commission, which meant that they could put the screws on um, Oxford and Cambridge uh, when they wanted to, and they did do that. Um, uh, if we skip the 1879 for a minute, the new Selborne Statutes in 1882, uh, they were published then. Uh, they were no doubt um, decided on a bit before that, uh, were the result of the 1877 uh, beginning. Now, in between, in 1879, there was a committee of council. Uh, Jowett, uh, who was quite a, a figure at the time, 
was really responsible for persuading council to set it up. And it was specifically directed to engineering and medicine. These were the two professions that worried the Victorians at that time. They really realised they had to do something uh, for both these subjects. Uh, medicine, you may think, is a long-established and prestigious Oxford subject, but actually at that time it was in a terrible state. And that was really because the professor of medicine, uh, Ackland, uh, thought that clinical work couldn't be done in Oxford or shouldn't be done in Oxford. Too small, too provincial. You had to go to big cities, London, Edinburgh, whatever it may be. And uh, he stood out on this almost alone and he was very heavily criticised and this committee was no doubt anxious to put matters right. <clears throat> now, um, the question is what became of these and the answer, roughly speaking, is nothing. Uh, physiology got its chair uh, in 1882. Uh, this committee reported in 1880 and two years later physiology got the chair. There was already a chair of medicine, Ackland's chair, but they now got physiology and that helped. Uh, <coughs> engineering didn't get anything. I suppose really engineering lacked a champion at that point. The physicists were sympathetic. There were plenty of scientists in Oxford who wanted engineering. That was not a problem, but um, it somehow didn't happen and that was partly financial. They were terrified of two things. They were terrified that the, uh, the engineering would virtually bring a factory to Oxford. And they were also terrified that once we got a professor, the expense of a lab would be enormous, which I suppose it was. But by the time we got one, it was all right. Now, the Selborne statutes allocated a, a chair to St. John's and Magdalen when funds permit. Well, you can imagine uh, that a college wasn't going to rush to save funds now permit. And these were college funds because the scandal of the earlier days of the 19th century was that colleges were, roughly speaking, rolling in money and the university had almost none. And the colleges used their money not for the purposes they were founded for, for poor students, they used it to keep fellows in luxury, and not even in Oxford. They kept uh, many, many non-resident fellows. Well, all that had been put right by this time, but the colleges... Uh, still had um, uh, worries because the income of colleges had collapsed at the end of the, eight, the 19th century because of the land depression. So uh, it wasn't all that easy. But nevertheless, the colleges could have afforded it, uh, and they did afford it, but Magdalen chose pure mathematics. Now, th that wasn't necessarily uh, wrong because pure mathematics was another chair that had been mentioned in their statutes. Uh, and uh, St. John's uh, chose rural economy much later. Now, <clears throat> this was the result of an enormous vacillation between all concerned, the mathematicians and council and the college, all of whom discussed it for about a year, changing their minds at regular intervals. And when they changed their minds, they always did so unanimously. Absolutely amazing. Uh, <clears throat> now... St. John's and rural economy, there was a reason behind that which was external. Um, there was a college in, uh, in Surrey um, called Cooper's Hill which taught foresters and engineers for the Indian service. And the government decided to close the college because they thought that they could get some um, general education in Oxford and Cambridge 
and then the Indian probationers could go to India for the practical work. So that college was closing. And the question was, where should the Indian probationers go? Oxford or Cambridge or both? Well, <clears throat> uh, Oxford didn't have a chance to get the engineers because they simply could not rival Cambridge facilities at that time. Uh, but they were determined to get the Foresters. And there were joint meetings of um, <clears throat> Oxford and Cambridge people with the India office, which were really quite hilarious. Um, Oxford, in his determination to get the uh, Foresters, uh, said they had facilities for practical work in forestry near Oxford, and it's thought they were referring to Bagley Wood uh, on the way to Abingdon. Uh, Cambridge, uh, on the other hand, didn't like Oxford muscle again at all, even for forestry, apparently, because at a later meeting, um, they said they didn't approve of the Oxford scheme to have the foresters at all. Um, <clears throat> uh, they, they would like um, some say in that. And uh, the, the civil servant who was chairing the meeting said, well, you said to Cambridge, well, you said you didn't want the foresters. And Cambridge said, well, we've changed our minds, particularly about the availability of forest around Cambridge. <laughs> Mind you, that is the account given by the Oxford representatives. <clears throat> well, um, so much for the chairs. They just didn't happen. But, but after 1906, uh, it really became a scandal. And there was enormous pressure uh, from some Oxford engineers, by which I mean distinguished engineers who had uh, graduated in perhaps mathematics at Oxford. One of these, for example, was Lucian Vernon Harcourt, uh, who was the professor of engineering at UCL, and he was scathing about Oxford doing nothing. So things really had to be done, and it was <coughs> realized at about that time that the real trouble uh, was not so much antagonism as lack of money. However, before they got down to the money, they did one thing. They set up a diploma in 1906, and there's the cover of the examination papers. They went through the whole rigmarole of having a very high-powered committee to run it. They appointed examiners in the time-honored way with a nominating committee, and <clears throat> they, they really um, uh, put in a lot of effort, and no one ever took the diploma. <laughs> uh, it was um, j just an effort to keep the pot boiling while they got down to serious business. Uh, now, in 1907, as many of you will know, uh, they realized they had to get money. And one of the reasons why Cambridge had got so far ahead in engineering was that they had had an appeal, which was very successful. And Oxford, for whatever reason, was rather shy at asking for money, but they decided it had to be done. And Curzon, uh, the former Viceroy of India, who ran Oxford as Chancellor much as he had run India, uh, he was a very vigorous reformer, actually, and he issued an appeal, and they did quite well. And although it wasn't only for engineering, uh, engineering was certainly in their minds. He and the Vice-Chancellor together did a lot of hard work raising money. So by 1907, uh, they had enough, and congregation approved the professorship by a very large majority, uh, which um, surprised some people, but um, the figures were 152 votes to 20. I think that's right, 152 to 20. Uh, it's pretty amazing that 20 didn't want a chair of engineering, actually, but if we overlook that, 
But I mean, there are always people who vote against anything, so uh, we can perhaps uh, understand. Uh, <clears throat> the electors met in London, and they had had a late applicant. And the, um, Townsend, who was a professor of physics at the time, one of them, uh, hadn't thought much of the shortlist. It said so. Mind you, there were many things that Townsend didn't think much of, and this shortlist was one of them. However, there was a late applicant, and his name was Charles Frew and Jenkin. And the electors met in London on the 21st of May, 1908, and elected Charles Frew and Jenkin to the chair. And a week after that, the Oxford magazine was congratulating the university on having secured a brilliant and attractive man. Now, the man was, as you know, this chap here, whose photograph you'll have seen outside. He had a pretty formidable CV. He had read mathematics. Well, he had studied engineering with his father in Edinburgh, and then he'd gone to Trinity in Cambridge to read, math to, to read mathematics for a year. But he changed his mind about the year and went on and took his degree, uh, getting an upper second. It was thought he might well have done better than that if, he'd, uh, if he hadn't uh, expected to be there for a short time. He then went into industry, and his first job got him starting work at 6 o'clock in the morning uh, until 5.30 at night with Mather and Platt in Manchester. Uh, most of you will be too young to remember things like Mather and Platt, but I do, and uh, I can visualize it only too well. <clears throat> um, he worked in many different places, railway workshops, gunpowder mills, steelworks, and then finally he was the works manager at Siemens in Stafford. And he, after that, he went to Siemens London to look after their electric traction department. He was in charge of electric traction for Siemens. He was widely thought of as a civil engineer, but in fact, uh, electrical engineers then were very often bracketed with civil engineers. And you'll find, if you uh, were looking at the old papers, that the, the names given to engineers varied enormously. Some were civil one day and mechanical the next. Some were civil and mechanical. Some were civil and electrical. It was rather, rather mixed up as it is now. <clears throat> uh, well, Jenkin didn't let the grass grow under his feet. Um, <clears throat> he started work straight away, visiting other labs to find out how things were done, because he hadn't been an academic, you see. He was, he was a, an industry man, really, uh, which is all the more credit to him. Uh, <clears throat> the school started officially early in 1909, in his second term, and <clears throat> he had students straight away. And um, the, first the first final examination was held in 1910. I'll leave this on just for long enough for you to decide you couldn't do either question. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'll take you on to uh, this man. There were two candidates in 1910. Uh, one failed. Uh, he would actually, he must have been quite a strong candidate because he tried again the next year and failed again. And then he had a year off to recover his courage and tried a third time, but I'm sorry to say he failed again. <laughs> but this chap took his first. He had already got a first in mathematics, so it wasn't too surprising. <clears throat> uh, his name was Fairburn, and as you can see, he got quite a good job in the end. He, he died long before his time. He died in 1945 in his 50s. <clears throat> but he had been chief um, engineer of the LMS, which was the biggest railway 
before uh, nationalization. He also got a class of locomotives uh, named after him, and two Fairburn locomotives, I believe, are still working uh, for fun, as it were, in the Lake District. <coughs> uh, well, now, uh, in 1911, uh, the next year, there were four uh, graduates, and interestingly, two of them were Rhodes Scholars. Uh, Rhodes Scholars had begun to come to Oxford in 1903, and quite a few of them wanted to be engineers, wanted to read engineering, and were rather dismayed to find they couldn't. And that argument was used by the vice-chancellor when he was appealing for the professorship as a good reason for having a professor, which it was, because Rhodes Scholars have been coming to this department ever since, and many of them, as you know, have done it great credit. Now, <clears throat> um, in 1911, there were four graduates, and two of them were Rhodes Scholars, one of the others uh, actually got the, the top marks, uh, although no one got a first. He got a very good second. And I'll show you his photograph. Uh, there he is. Uh, it turn, turns out that he was a legendary rugby player. Um, <clears throat> his name was Ronald Poulton, and he came from rugby school. And he actually had come up in 1908, but he, hadn't, he needed three terms at least of residence, so he um, uh, didn't graduate till 1911. Um, he didn't get his blue in the first year because his style of rugby was a bit uh, unconventional, and Oxford had a very strong team, it was said. That very strong team uh, nearly lost to Cambridge. However, when Poulton finally got his blue, he scored five tries. <laughs> and Cambridge didn't know what had happened to them. He had a very distinctive style of running, uh, holding the ball before him, and um, <clears throat> uh, he was really quite well known. And this was his last international game, uh, France versus England in Paris, and he was the captain of England, and they had won every single game. So he um, captained England to the Five, uh, the five Nations Championship, and he, he was killed in action in 1915. Modesty prevents me from telling you what his college was. <laughs> <coughs> now, in 1912 and 13, uh, Jenkin had been making a large fuss about his accommodation. The Millard Lab had done its job well, but it was really very small. And for a growing school with quite appreciable numbers of undergraduates, it was much too small. And <coughs> Jenkin had acquired six Keeble Road, and he had acquired a, a, an iron shed near the museum. So he operated on three sites, none very satisfactory. And he really was very, very keen to get a proper lab. And um, <coughs> money was raised. They got the money. The real problem was where to put it. And here are some of the suggestions made. Here is the back gardens of the terrace houses in Museum Road. And although it's not shown on this map, the agriculture and forestry buildings were already built around there somewhere. So this is a very constricted site. It had been suggested, I don't know by whom, but Jenkin and the scientists said it really was too narrow. It was a long, thin building, uh, a bit thinner even than it shows on, on this scale. And... <clears throat> Uh, Jenkin really didn't want that. 
next, the curators of the parks, no less, suggested that up here in the parks, up by Norham Gardens, might be a good site. Well, if you lived in Norham Gardens, what would you think? Uh, it didn't stand a chance, and I think it's been suggested that the curators did that deliberately to make sure it was thrown out. Um, <clears throat> it was defeated heavily in congregation, despite Jenkin giving a very good speech about, um, about the need for a lab. So that was thrown out. The next thing was here. When that was thrown out, this chemistry building was accepted just about, by convocation, and so chemistry got this building, and so it was then suggested that engineering might get a building alongside it, pretty well opposite Mansfield Road. Well, that got the Oxford magazine worked up. They, they, they got really quite hysterical about that and said, <clears throat> this is wanton damage. The parts will be gone in a few years. You know the kind of thing. And so <clears throat> um, <coughs> there was a lot of propaganda about this. And the night before it was due to be voted on, the motion was withdrawn. And the reason for that was three people had been quietly beavering away unofficially and had acquired a site up here, <laughs> which you know well. They had acquired a site for the Jenkin building. It was a nursery garden at the time, <clears throat> and um, uh, they bought the freehold from St. John's and the leasehold from the nursery owners. And uh, that was achieved in 1913. And in 1914, the lab was finished. And you know what it's like. It wasn't the lab we know now as a Jenkin building. It was a good deal smaller. It was without its two wings. Uh, on, on the western side, on the Banbury Road, there was only about half built. And on the other side, there was just enough to include the entrance and nothing south of that. Uh, <coughs> now, um, on the Jenkin building, uh, there was this rather uh, well-known figure which was uh, sculpted by Jenkin's sister-in-law, a sculptress called Margaret Giles. And she also did these two figures, and not everyone knows what they're representing, but this is actually a salamander, and that's a penguin and they represent heat and cold. If you look at them on this, you might feel you don't know which is a salamander and which is a penguin. <laughs> and if you look in daylight, you might not be much the wiser. <laughs> However, if you look very carefully, you'll find the penguin has got quite a narrow beak and the salamander doesn't, <laughs> uh, which is a good way of telling. <clears throat> um, so these were original with the building. Actually, the architect had suggested the figure of a man up here. So we nearly got uh, a rather um, small man uh, instead of the boy in the tortoise. It was Margaret uh, Giles herself who suggested a small man would look insignificant from the street and a, a good chunky boy on a good chunky tortoise is what you wanted. <laughs> uh, and that's what she got. Now the war came soon after that. The lab was ready in Christmas uh, 1914, and then came the war, and the lab emptied. Uh, <clears throat> unlike the Second War, the, the, there was no official activity at all in the lab. It was kept in order by the museum officials. But Jenkin went to war, all the staff went to war, all the students went to war. So the lab was quite empty. 
In March 1919, it came to life again, and there was a post-war bulge began. Um, only a few undergraduates uh, took uh, their degree in 1920, but after that, uh, the number shot up. And in 1922, uh, <clears throat> 22 engineers graduated. And um, one of them was a chap called Norway, who took a third. He became a, a very well-known airship designer. Uh, his airships didn't um, meet with disaster. They were all right. But the industry collapsed, as you know, because of accidents elsewhere. And uh, Norway took to um, designing airplanes um, of a, a much simpler sort. He, what, he set up and worked for a firm called Airspeed. Uh, but he found that rather routine, so he took to his other occupation, left engineering, although he'd done very well. He left engineering and took to his uh, other interests, which was writing novels. And he wrote novels under his forenames, which were Neville Shute. And you may know them. <clears throat> now, the final results uh, were a bit worrying uh, in these days. Uh, in the five years, 1920 to 24, 20% um, 20 of candidates took first, not bad. But 33% um, either took a fourth or failed. Uh, it was the problem of the long tail. It wasn't uh, confined to Oxford. It happened everywhere in engineering for reasons which most of you will understand. Uh, <clears throat> research started as well, and uh, one or two other activities. Uh, Jenkin was greatly taken by the astrolabes in the Museum of the History of Science, and he designed and made one for educational purposes, and... Uh, presented it to the museum where it can be seen, although I think not on display at the moment. <coughs> and you can see what it says. It was invented uh, by this chap in BC 150, but it was designed and made by Jenkin in 1925. <laughs> and uh, it's called the Oxford Astrolabe, and it was sold for half a guinea, uh, 52 and a half pence for uh, many of you, and um, it sold out. And it came with a booklet written by Jenkin. It's quite a successful venture. Now, <clears throat> I must get on, and um, that means I need to show you the plan of the Jenkin building. When it was extended, the original stopped here. And what you see now, that nice symmetrical front, is actually the result of this extension, which was intended by the architect from the beginning, but unlike some buildings one can think of, uh, wasn't finished to the same pattern. Uh, this wing here still stopped at the entrance. Uh, that was opened in 1927. Uh, now, Jenkin um, got very interested in soil mechanics uh, because he was asked to investigate uh, soils for uh, Southampton docks. He was asked by the building research station to do that. Uh, so soil mechanics was started in Oxford um, very early, uh, in the middle 20s. And this uh, machine was uh, designed for so-called triaxial testing. I essentially, uh, the, it doesn't survive, so we can't be sure what did what. But this looks very much like a spring, although we can't be sure. And the specimen is in there being squeezed. You may well ask me uh, why it's called triaxial, and that's a very good question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now, in 1929, uh, Jenkin was succeeded by Southwell, this uh, chap uh, straight from Cambridge. And you 
probably have heard that what he was known for was his relaxation method, which was his uh, method of solving equations, which he developed to a, a very high pitch and was very successful. It was further developed by several other people here in this department. Uh, now, Southall made it a condition of coming that he should have a reader. He didn't fancy doing electricity himself. Jenkin did absolutely anything. Uh, Southall thought electricity was a bit too much, so he got this chap, also from Cambridge, called Moulin, uh, admire his middle name, <laughs> but he went to Maudlin. <laughs> Amazing, isn't it? There we are. <clears throat> um, Southall's interests were not only in relaxation, he was interested in uh, uh, impact, and uh, the impact machine is beyond this slide. This slide shows the eastern extension which Southall got in the early 30s. You can see it's a different style. There's the Jenkin building with the entrance hall and the original entrance bit, and this bit was added on. And this is the western extension which Jenkin had built. <coughs> now, uh, what I want to show you is this impact machine. Uh, Southall designed uh, this because he didn't think the ISOD impact machine was any good. Uh, this was hung on wires in a very fancy way to make sure that both the, the swinging part and the target part remained horizontal. And uh, the idea of the strings was that you, no energy escaped. <coughs> uh, now, here is a group of people, because it's time we looked at some individuals. Uh, there is Southall. There's his reader, uh, uh, Moulin. Uh, here is uh, Frederick Llewellyn Smith, who became head of Rolls-Royce Motors. Here is Stanley Hooker, of whom we shall hear a little more later. And here is uh, Douglas Henchley, who many of us know as Brigadier Douglas Henchley, our senior alumnus. And he might well have been here, but I believe he couldn't in the end come. He came up in 1930 and was either about to take or had taken his finals when this was taken. Uh, <clears throat> these two, take note, Ben Canning, and this man with the wonderful name of Septimus Monday, uh, <laughs> who was the instrument maker. And uh, they were a great... Um, um, they, they, they served the department between them for 90-odd years, and they were employed by Jenkin in 1909. Observe where they're sitting. Now, <clears throat> there's Hooker who became uh, famous for his work on Rolls-Royce engines. Uh, not the only Oxford engineer to be in that line of business. Uh, here is a slightly later group, and this includes uh, Dermon Christofferson, who became the um, <coughs> vice-chancellor at Durham University in due course, and uh, master of Magdalen College, Cambridge, the first member of the department to be head of an Oxbridge college uh, and uh, a vice-chancellor in another university. Uh, here is our first woman graduate, Anne Pellew, who took a first from St. Hugh's College. And she went on to a remarkable career herself. There she is in later years, in her flying year. She went to Farnborough and was one of the team that investigated the comet aircraft disasters. You remember two comets fell out of the sky and it was a major disaster because the, the comet was a de Havilland product, I think, and it was the first commercial jet plane. And so a tremendous effort was put, put into finding out why. 
and uh, the, the way they found out what happened was to fly a comet and wait for something to happen. <laughs> and so it was really quite a brave thing to do. Uh, so they were all very much uh, in the national press, you know. And um, <clears throat> uh, this is an entirely bogus photograph because she wasn't really flying a plane at the time at all. She was at home uh, and the press had come to take her photograph and they said, put on your flying gear, it'll look better. <laughs> so being a biddable sort of Oxford engineer, she did. <laughs> this is a later group and this is 1944. This contains a few interesting people as well. Um, here is Mott, who uh, was sent to Oxford during the war by C.P. Snow himself. Uh, he was a refugee from Austria, and as you, you know, he came back here later as a reader. Uh, now, uh, this chap is Ewan Corlett, uh, who was a naval architect who brought back the uh, ship the Great Britain from the Falklands and it's now on display in Bristol as you know. He was responsible for that. It was his idea and he did it. Uh, uh, this man is Gordon Lewis uh, formerly president of SOUE a very distinguished aircraft engine designer responsible for the Pegasus engine in the Hawker Harrier. Uh, here is um, a chap called Belfield who had come oh, quite, quite some time ago. He retired soon after this. He was, he was um, <clears throat> a Cambridge man originally, and he drove fast cars and was thought to be the most eligible bachelor in Oxford. <laughs> so th there's some hope for all of us, really. <clears throat> now, uh, after the Second War, uh, that's Gordon Lewis, by the way, when he uh, became technical director of Rolls-Royce. And then... After the war, um, Tom was elected. Alexander Tom uh, trained in Glasgow, taught and lectured there, had a distinguished wartime career at RAE Farnborough, an aerodynamicist and um, a hardy Scot. Um, <clears throat> he thought a good start to the day was having a cold bath uh, out of doors. <clears throat> so he um, did better than many Scots I can think of. Uh, Moulin, uh, the reader, and Binney returned to Cambridge, but uh, a chap called uh, Black, who's in some of the photographs outside, uh, became the reader, and um, he was uh, uh, later uh, replaced by another reader called Dick. Uh, it, it's sometimes pointed out that if you've got a professor called Tom and a reader called Dick, there's, there's only one thing missing. I, I, and, and you've guessed it, the head of the workshop was Harry. Um, however, there was um, um, numbers were increasing, and the f one of the early things that Tom did in the 50s was to put an extra story on this uh, east wing that had been built in the 30s. So that's the extra story you can tell. It's a different style of architecture. And the whole of the east wing, I'm afraid, wasn't much thought of by other architects, but um, it, it does the job. Now, at that time, <clears throat> there was some doubt about engineering in Oxford, the question was, was it viable? Small school, um, could it be done? And they had an expert committee, so-called, to report on it. And I have to say that the Oxford professors uh, didn't do too well. Charwell thought that universities shouldn't do engineering, they should be done in big technical colleges. He wanted one somewhere near Oxford, but not here. 
Uh, Hinchley would um, thought of a few things, like could we perhaps do just electronics or could we maybe do, do chemical engineering because that was practical, he said, being a chemist. Uh, and Sir Francis Simon was, was a good deal more sensible, but sadly he, he died before the committee reported. And uh, <clears throat> Tom really took the view that all we needed to do was get a bit bigger. Unfortunately, these men, these great and good men from industry, uh, who were Cambridge engineers mostly, uh, this one was a physicist, they, they agreed. They said, the place is fine. All you need is to make it bigger. And so that was decided. And that was a great relief. Uh, but the, um, <clears throat> the Oxford people were quite sure that they had been saved by Cambridge, as opposed to their science colleagues here. Uh, the plans for the keyboard triangle, if you can visualize it turned, turned an end, included an enormous lecture theater nearest to the science area and a concourse which didn't just run near our two buildings, which by that time were already planned to be there, but was going to run the whole length of the triangle and everything else, of course, was going to be raised to the ground. You may feel thankful that didn't happen. In 1962, this photograph was taken by a local citizen called Spokes, and it shows the buildings that were left where nuclear physics now is, <coughs> and the Tom building about, what, four or five stories high in the background. Uh, so that's the stage we'd got to uh, in 1962. And then, of course, as you know, it was uh, opened in 1963. Here is a group in 1958 uh, while all this agonizing about the department was going on, research was quietly taking place in the background. And some of it was being done by an electronics group uh, <clears throat> run by this man whom we saw earlier, who had been away but had come back as reader in 54. And here is his group. You'll recognize uh, Don Walsh looking cheerful in the background. Um, and behind this chap, who, who, whom I don't know, you'll see peeping out from behind... Uh, Miss Judy Maloney, better known now to us as Mrs. Clark Brandine. <laughs> uh, the buildings, of course, uh, 9 to 10 South Parks Road, were on the site of the present zoology lab, so they were covered by a whole heap of concrete. <clears throat> now, Tom retired as planned in 1961, and there came to the department Douglas Holder. Now, Holder had had a very outstanding career as a student at Imperial. He'd had a meteoric career at the NPL. He became uh, Deputy Chief Scientific Officer at the age of 34. And uh, uh, I, th I think 34. He was certainly still in his 30s. That's right. And he came to the Oxford chair while he was still in his 30s in 1963. Now, his task was formidable uh, because he had to build up a department that had a nice new lab, had to build up its uh, numbers, and he did that with enormous energy. He was known to be a very kind and gentle man. That was always said about him. He was very much liked by those who worked for him and with him, and he was always supportive of his colleagues. And the only forum in which his strengths came out really in a way was the university because with the university he was an absolute tiger 
he um, got them by the throat and said, you know, you must give us money to keep the place going. We must have more posts. And not only the university, industry. He talked them into posts. He talked the colleges into electing fellows. Uh, and he um, just built the place up. It was a, a, a pretty remarkable performance. And uh, it's very sad indeed that he died before his time in 1977. I don't have time to go into details of all he did, but the department continued to grow and <coughs> to get increasingly successful. Uh, new professors came, and uh, uh, there were several chairs. Uh, when uh, Douglas Holder died in 77, there were, I think, three chairs. The question was, which one should be head of department? So there was a good deal of agonizing about what, what should happen to the headship. And it was quickly decided that the headship should rotate and that a new head should be uh, uh, advertised for in any suitable field in the meantime. So to keep the thing going, they advertised for a, a new professor in any field who would be head of department, but for a limited time. And that was the beginning of the rotating headship that we now know. Uh, and um, in the meantime, before um, the next professor came, uh, after Douglas Holder died, Donald Schultz, who was another sad loss when he died before his time too in the 80s, Donald Schultz took over for two years and kept the momentum going. One of the things he did was to get going the EEM course, the, the four-year course with management. Uh, so the, the momentum wasn't lost at all. And then uh, that is Donald Schultz, uh, who became a professor himself in 84 and died in 87. Uh, the uh, professor who uh, took over in 79 was Peter Roth. He actually um, was head of the department for 10 years. After five, he was asked to do a second term. And he did that. And yet again, uh, he was uh, elected Master of Emmanuel College in 1990 and uh, fell ill and died soon afterwards. It was really a tragedy for him and uh, everyone concerned. The department really has been unfortunate in the losses that has suffered. Uh, another one that I should mention briefly is Peter Wally, who uh, recently was instrumental with uh, Mike Brady in setting up chemical engineering with the help of people from industry, one of whom, of course, is still with us, as you will know. Uh, that was um, Peter Roth, and his um, memorial, really, is the E&T building, but also the hawthorn tree that was planted at the south end of it. And I noticed the plaque for that is rather submerged in undergrowth, so it's difficult to see uh, why the hawthorn tree was there or even that it is there. Just dropping a hint, you know. <laughs> uh, now, uh, Roth, of course, um, started the rotating headship. Since when, the headship has rotated as planned, and um, there's been, th that is an extra that I must show you. He was Sir Ray Freeman, uh, president of SOUE, the first president, because one of Roth's things one of his achievements was to start SOUE. That was Roth's doing. And he was the first president. A very distinguished civil engineer, as you know. That brings me then to this cheerful photograph. 
And uh, <clears throat> you may be able to make a deduction from this photograph, actually, if you think about it. It's this, that if you're a knight of the realm, you get to leave your tie off. <laughs> actually, on a serious, uh, you, I'm sure you know these names well. And they're in the correct sequence. Mike Brady followed Peter Roth, then David Clark, then Rodney E. Duck Taylor, and finally Richard Darton. Now, <clears throat> I'd like to end on a serious note, and I'm sorry I'm late in doing so, and that is that I don't know that we all realize how extremely fortunate we've been in our heads of department. Now, I don't mean to be fulsome, but if you look at the records of what other departments had to put up with, you'll realize <laughs> that our heads have, without exception, been excellent. They have promulgated research, they have cared about teaching, they have got on well with the colleagues, they have respected their predecessors, and they've been respected in their turn. It's quite a privilege, really, for a department that's had a lot of adversity to be able to say that. For example, when physics had two professors at the time of Jenkins' election, they didn't get on with each other at all, and the, younger, the, the, the older one hadn't done research for, for years. The younger one was a good researcher, but in the end, he became impossible and had to be eased out. And while he was still active, he scheduled his lectures to coincide with the other professors. <laughs> we don't have that now, I don't think. Thank you very much. <laughs> the reason why we're called engineering science, I'm not sure. I think um, it was because there was a lot of anxiety among the ignorant people as to whether it really did mean a big factory or a workshop. And people were at pains to say it's not a workshop, it's not a workshop. Uh, ironically, in recent years, Alan Knight, who I believe is here, uh, had to give a small course in workshop practice to our first years because they were so utterly ignorant of what a workshop did. So things turned full circle in the end. <clears throat> also note that engineering was avoided as a, a title altogether in Cambridge for a long time. Mechanical sciences, not engineering. So it's complicated, and I think they were anxious to make sure that it was scientific preparation. But these engineers, the best engineers of that day, were quite clear that both the scientific training and the practice were necessary. They were very keen on both. Well, by that time, of course, it wouldn't have mattered too much. I mean, the 70s, yes. Well, by that time, of course, everyone knew that engineering had to be scientific or it, it didn't work. <laughs> First of all, the point you mentioned, of course, about Cambridge and mechanism rather than engineering. Really, of course, one of the, the great drivers in Cambridge was Sir George Bidelaire, the Astronomer Royal, on whom I've done quite a lot of work, who was himself, of course, a mathematician, but fascinated by the problems of instrumentation. And, of course, there's greatly much concern with the fact that there should really be men coming from Cambridge. I think it's 1868 in Cambridge that mechanism is first taught. 
who actually knew not only the mathematics, but also the, the physics and the, the constructional skills, which of course he then begins in Cambridge. But yes. also through the comment you mentioned uh, earlier on in the lecture with Smith and with Percival about clergymen. Yes. Um, again, I found my own work in the 19th century, technically minded vicars are everywhere. Ballooning, cinematography, gun making, grill making, the lot. How they did their sermons, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Reverend Mr. Sonsos are everywhere in every conceivable technical sense. Yes, yes. And they're one of the biggest single groups that corresponded with the English Mechanic magazine. Yeah, yeah, I, I could imagine that. In fact, it's said that. Um, the, the biggest obstacles to reform in Oxford were, were the four C's, you know. Um, uh, clerics, colleges, <laughs> con conservatives, but there's, a, there's, a, there's another one. Classics, that's it. Um, colleges, clerics, classics, and conservatives. These were the obstacles. But, of course, every single reform fr from which we benefited was started, well, I don't know about every single one, but the majority were started by people who were good college men, clerics, and had probably read classics. <laughs> Time for one more question. I'm interested in the chunky lab and the chunky tortoise. Is there any significance of this statue that was the salamander of the penguin that you know of? The significance of, of them having that? Of the chunky lab and the chunky Oh, the boy and the tortoise. The, the sculptress, well, the sculptress's daughter um, told us in a letter addressed to Peter Lund that it was meant to represent youthful engineering subduing the earth. Not a good environmental message nowadays, but that's what it was, <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's what it was meant to represent, I think. Uh, and uh, it's become an icon. Alistair, firstly, I'm personally very grateful that your voice held out. <laughs> Not very well. But secondly, I want to thank you for a magnificent lecture, and I'd like to add three thoughts. The first is, a lot of us here have joined the department, and subconsciously we think that history of the department started when we got there, and the rest is rather murky. What you've done is opened a veil and showed us where the department comes from and what its history is, and you've done that magnificently. Secondly, you did leave this out. <laughs> and my comment is that a book that has been read in minute detail by over 5,000 undergraduates must be pretty good. <laughs> And thirdly, we note that you are writing a history of the department, so I'd say to everybody, you've seen the lecture, now read the book. <laughs> Thank you very much.